Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for February 16th, 2020. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message called Doctrine of the Church, Charismatic Gifts, Divine Healing. Today, Brother Omar answers the questions, does God still heal today? And are we guaranteed healing? And what is God's ultimate and final solution for our physical ailments? Join us as we go to God's Word this week on Followers of the Way. So we're continuing our series in our Statement of Faith, right? Everybody knows where we're at. And we've been talking about the gift of the Spirit. So if you guys remember, we divided the gifts of the Spirit into two categories. We have the permanent edifying gifts, and then we have the miraculous, also known as the charismatic gifts of the Spirit. All right? So we spoke a little bit about last time before my last sermon, I talked a little bit about divine providence. For those of you who were not here, I talked about the doctrine of divine providence because we're going to be speaking on issues like miracles, signs, wonders, and healings. So before I got into any of those things, I wanted to sort of explain what the Bible teaches about the providence of God and the difference between what is a miracle and what is an act of God's providence. Now, as a small summary of the last sermon, the doctrine of God's providence is simply the belief or the teaching that God is involved and oversees all things that happen, right? That everything that happens, happens under God's guidance, uh, control, and providence because God is gearing all things towards a particular destination, all right? So he's the overruling power in this planet. Um, a quick definition of this is God is present in the world, sustaining, controlling, and guiding to their destination all things that are made. God is sustaining, controlling, and guiding to its destination all things that are made. Okay? So all things that happen are happening under God's providence. He's the sustainer. He's the preserver. He's the one who guides all things that happen in this world. A miracle is a temporary suspension of the laws of nature. Now, the reason I say that is because in, we are looking at the charismatic Pentecostal movement, and there is a notion that happens in the charismatic Pentecostal movement, and that is that God is only involved in something if it's miraculous, right? So unless something that happens is miraculous or weird or something like that, then we don't understand it as something that is from God. But the Bible teaches that all things that happened, whether they be extraordinary or ordinary, normal or not normal, happen under the guiding, sustaining, and controlling power of God. The Bible says, in Him we live, we move, and we have our being. Okay? So whether something is extraordinary or is not extraordinary, God is the one who is sustaining, controlling, guiding, and etc. He's present at all times in this world. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, very quickly, you don't have to go there, Jesus tells His disciples... Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. What Jesus is telling his disciples is that God is the one that has ultimate power over their lives. So he was telling them, don't fear. He's talking about the Pharisees. Don't fear them. The best thing that they could do to you is they can kill you, right? That's the worst thing a person can do. But men can only destroy your body, but God can destroy both your body and your soul. Furthermore, he goes on to say, not one bird that falls to the ground, falls to the ground apart from your father, and you are of more value than a bird. In other words, even if men can destroy your body and kill you, they could only do so by God's allowance. And they could only harm you by God's allowance. Ultimately, what God, Jesus is telling his disciples that whether you live or whether you die will depend upon God. He has the ultimate control and power over your life. Preaching on this verse, John Wesley says, and this is a quote, this proverbial expression implies that nothing is so small or insignificant in the sight of men as not to be an object of the care and providence of God, Amen. before whom nothing is small that concerns the happiness of any of his creatures. Even the smallest things that we may think are small are under the object and care of God. He goes on to say, the omnipresent God sees and knows all the properties of the beings that he has made. He knows all the connections, dependencies, and relations, and all the ways wherein one of them can affect another. In particular, he sees all the inanimate parts of the creation, whether in heaven above or in the earth beneath. He knows the stars, the comets, the planets, above influence the inhabitants of the earth beneath. What influence the lower heavens with their magazines of fire, hail, snow, vapors, winds, and storms have on our planet? What effects may be produced in the bowels of the earth by fire, air, or water? What exhalations may be raised therefrom and what changes wrought thereby? What effects every numeral or vegetable may have upon the children of men? All these lie naked and open to the eye of the creator and preserver of the universe. It is John Wesley on the providence of God, Sermon 67, in case you were, wanted to look it up. So this is the doctrine that teaches that everything that happens, no matter how small, happens under God's providential care, and that He is the ever-present, that He is ever-present in the universal existence of His creation. He presides over it and accomplishes through it all of His own designs. Okay? Now, I gave a couple of examples last time between the difference between what is a miracle and what is an act of providence, all right? So my, my very good example that I gave, I thought about this, I thought it through, all right? So this is good. If you want to hear, this is good. If I am walking in a forest and I fall and a branch pierces me through and I start bleeding and I'm bleeding to death, I cannot walk and I pray and ask God to save me and a man who is a park ranger, who happens to be there because his route was changed because there's some construction on the other side of the park. He's worked at the park for 20 years, and he, for whatever reason that day, they changed his route. 
he stumbles upon me, he calls an ambulance, they take me to the hospital, and they save my life. Is that a miracle? No, it's not. It's not a miracle. A miracle would have been if I pray and ask God to save me, and the blood sucks up into my wound, the wound heals, I get up, and I walk away. That's a miracle. In the first scenario, no laws of nature were violated. A man stumbled upon me, called the hospital, I went to the emergency room, they took care of me, right? Is the first one a work of God? Yes, it is. But it's not a miracle. It is an act of God's providence. God did not find out that day that I was going to fall. When God said, let there be light, and there was light, me falling in a forest was already in his mind. And God putting all things together, working it out for the good of those who love him, is an act of his providential work. It's not a miracle, but it's still God's work. You see what I mean? So the notion that it has to be miraculous, and I heard people say, I just hope God is involved in this situation. Well, did it happen in this universe? Yes, God is involved in this situation. He's inescapable, right? So that's the difference. The doctrine of God's providence is simply that. It is the truth that God is present in the universal existence of his creation. He presides over it. He rules over it. He sustains it and accomplishes through it all of his own designs. Okay, so that's a brief summary of my last sermon. All right. Now, we are talking about the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, and we are going to start talking about, at least for today, the issue of miracles and signs and wonder. We cover a little bit about that last time, specifically the issue of divine healing. All right. Now, some history, the Pentecostal charismatic movement, as you guys know, began in 1906. Well, it actually began earlier than that, but it was the big Azusa Street revival happened in 1906. Uh, fast forward to the 1940s and 50s, we begin to see the so-called healing revivals and the creation of a brand new ministry called the Faith Healing Ministry. And this is the idea that there are certain men who have this gift of healing that if you go to them, they have power to heal. Okay? The most prominent of these men, if you look at the history of the Pentecostal movement, you're going to find a name of William Branham. William Branham is probably the father of the faith healing crusades and all that stuff, all right? He was a very interesting person and creature. He was claimed crazy things, like he, he raised people from the dead all the time. He make arms grow. He supposedly, uh, there are, there, there's a picture of him with a halo above his head. There was supposed to be a pillar of fire, all sorts of claims. He died in 1956 in a car accident, and for six days after he died, his body was kept because his followers thought that he was going to raise up from the dead, and they kept praying and praying, and that didn't happen. Eventually, he was buried, etc. He was very influential in the Pentecostal charismatic movement, and a lot of the faith healings that we see today came from his practice, his, his teaching. So this is the birth of what is known today as the full gospel movement. If you ever seen churches that are called full gospel churches, full gospel worship centers, 
these four gospel movements is the idea or the notion that in order to preach the gospel completely, or the gospel is not complete unless it's accompanied by signs and wonders and healings and miracles. That is, if I simply preach the gospel, that's not enough. In order for the gospel to be real, in order for the gospel to have power, it needs to be accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles and healings, etc. Okay, this is called the full gospel. Just preaching is not full. The full gospel is preaching plus signs and wonders and miracles. Okay, now, many of the signs and wonders and miracles, uh, or this movement called the Signs and Wonders movement, began to become very popular on radio, then it went on to television, and then went on to like crusades and things like that. Several different men arose, uh, men like Catherine Kuhlman, L.A. Allen, and several others became very popular. And the emphasis was the uh, signs and wonders as a true sign of real gospel preaching. Okay, now almost all of us here grew up in churches, been to churches that sort of are that way, all right? Now, uh, the other thing that I wanted to say that this was also the birth of something known as the deliverance ministry. Uh, this is the, if you go to a charismatic church, you will have on Sunday, you have regular gospel preaching, and then on Wednesday, you'll have the deliverance service. So what happens here, say you have, you're an alcoholic, and you struggle with alcoholism, and instead of, reading scripture, looking for accountability, involving yourself in spiritual exercises, praying, the discipline of the normal Christian life. You don't do that. What you would do is that you would go to this Wednesday night service whereby a man, prophet, an apostle, a man of God, will pray for you and he will cast out the spirit of alcoholism from you. Okay? So you will go to these services they're very active, they're very good, right? And they will lay hands on you, and they will pray over you, and they will cast out the spirit of alcoholism out of you. Lately, I have even seen the practice of vomiting. You will vomit out in buckets the spirits of alcoholism or homosexuality or whatever sin you have in your life, they teach is a spirit that needs to be cast out. This is called the deliverance ministries, deliverance church services, etc. All right. All of this comes from the science and wonders movement. So today, what I want to do is I want to show um, how these gifts of the spirit function in the church. We've covered that. And what was the purpose of these gifts? Um, in particular, divine healing. Okay, one of the major claims of faith healers is that they can heal people. Now, I have two verses that I want to go over, and I want to answer the question, does God still heal today? All right, so I got two verses for you. Acts chapter 19, verse 11. I'm going to read that. And then we're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to see how healing more or less worked in the Bible. Acts chapter 19, verse 11 says this, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, 
I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Okay, here's a brief summary of what happened here. God was doing miracles through the Apostle Paul, including divine healing to the point that garments that touch his skin were being sent out to other people and they were healed by touching them. Also, this is similar to Acts chapter 5 where we're told that Peter's shadow, Peter was just walking around, people were bringing uh, lame and sick people so that the shadow of Peter will, cast, will be casted upon them and they will be healed. Now the Bible emphasizes that everyone was healed. Okay? It wasn't like you didn't get healed now, you need to come back with better faith. Everybody was healed. Every single person was healed. And when the Apostle Paul was at Ephesus, his garments that touched him were healing people. Okay? So... That's Acts chapter 19, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 19. Here's the other verse. Paul says this, Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Aratus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Ebulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers, the Lord be with your spirit. Grace be to you. Did you notice something? Paul left Trophimus sick at Miletus, right? This is the same person. This is Paul, whose garments were healing people. Trophimus has been his companion in the gospel for seven years. He falls ill. Paul leaves him ill at Miletus before he leaves. So the question is, why didn't Paul heal him? We also know that Paul wrote to Timothy in the first letter, and he says to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 23, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Why didn't Paul send him a handkerchief, right, so he can touch himself and get healed? Now this is the same person. He's the same person who's doing all these signs and wonders and healings, that is healing all these people on one occasion, is on the other occasion leaving people sick, like Trophimus, he left him sick at Miletus. And so, the answer to this question, I believe, is found in the purpose of the miracles. All right? We keep going back to this idea that the operation of miraculous gifts that we see in the New Testament and in the book of Acts were given by God for a purpose. God gave the apostles and the disciples of the apostles miraculous power 
for a reason. All right. And the purpose was to authenticate the message of the apostles and their disciples. The apostles, as we know, were the foundation of the Christian church. And so their ministry and the period that encompasses the book of Acts were unique and therefore non-repeatable. Okay. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 19 says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together into a dwelling place for God by their spirit. There is a building, a place where God wants to live, right? The foundation of this building is the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone in the old days when people built something, they would figure out where the cornerstone was going to be, and the whole building would be built in reference to that cornerstone. The cornerstone is Christ, the building is the church where God dwells. The foundation of this building is the apostles and the prophets, right? Notice that the building is being built, but the foundation was already laid. So you don't lay the foundation again and again and again. You lay the foundation once. It's done. You don't go back to that. And then you build on top of the foundation. The Bible says that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. You have the Old Testament prophets and you have the New Testament apostles. They're the foundation of the church. That's it. That's why people today, there's people who call themselves apostles and prophets. I have people ask me, you think such and such is a false prophet? Does he call himself a prophet? Yes, he's a false prophet. That's it. Because the, that foundation was laid. It's done away with. All right? So once you lay the foundation, you don't lay it again. But once you laid it, you lay it once in the past, and that's it. And so what we see in the book of Acts is God laying the foundation of the building in the ministry of the apostles. All right? Now, you and I know who the apostles are because we have the word of God. We know that. We know Paul was an apostle. We know Peter was an apostle. We know James was an apostle. But what happened if you did not have the word of God? As the people in the book of Acts didn't. They didn't have a New Testament. The New Testament was not there yet. The New Testament was being written by the apostles. How do I know that Joe Schmo is an apostle and his words and his message is the word of God? Well, Paul tells us this in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12. In 2 Corinthians, let me give you some story. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, addressing some issues that apparently were sent to him. He writes them this letter, rebuking them and correcting them. Apparently, there were some people who didn't like what Paul said and were questioning his apostleship. So said, well, should we listen to you? You're not one of the 12. You are not with Peter out there with Jesus and James and all these guys. You came later, right? So Paul has to spend like two chapters trying to defend his ministry and prove that he's a true apostle. 
But in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he says this. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Signs, wonders, mighty works were the signs of a true apostle. How did you know that this man spoke for God because he can go to a man that everybody has known forever was handicapped and say to him, get up and walk, and the man will get up and walk away. That's how you knew that he was a man sent from God. You couldn't corroborate it because you had no scripture, but you knew that behind him were signs and wonders and mighty works. This is all over the scriptures. This is how Moses, right? God says to Moses, go and tell Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh's not going to believe. How is Pharaoh going to believe what I'm going to say? Take your staff, throw it in the ground. Turns into a serpent. That is a bona fide miracle. Grab it again and turns into a staff again. God is telling Moses, don't worry about it. When you go over there, I'm going to authenticate you as my messenger because of signs and wonders and mighty works. But once the law was given... Now we don't need signs and wonders and miracles because we have the word of God to authenticate the message. We got the message, all right? That's the simple principle, all right? So signs and wonders and divine miracles, which include healing, were given to the apostles and their disciples for a purpose to authenticate them and their message in a time where the New Testament was being revealed not to be received on demand, meaning healing is not something that we receive on demand. I'm sure Trophimus have faith. Yet he was sick. I'm sure Timothy have faith. Yet he had to take wine for his stomach. All right? Yet, what we see is that in particular times when God wants to authenticate his message before the revelation was given to us, he gave people the power to heal and to do all these signs and wonders. In Hebrews chapter 1. I am going to quote Hebrew chapter 1 in every sermon. In fact, no, chapter 2. I'm going to give you guys a break. Okay, chapter 2. Verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience receive a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to those by those who heard, while God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. The message, the writer of Hebrews says, that was declared first by the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, He came declaring the message of salvation to us. And it was attested to us by those who heard, that would be the disciples and the apostles. And God bore witness of that message by signs and wonders and various miracles and by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The purpose of the miracles and the signs and the wonders that we see in the book of Acts was to corroborate these men as the messengers of God and to say that their message that they're speaking is the word of God. Once the word of God is recorded, 
then the purpose of the miracles and the signs and wonder is met, and therefore they no longer are in operation, at least the way that they were in the book of Acts. So the difference between Acts chapter 19 and 2 Timothy is that Acts chapter 19, Paul is in the middle of his ministry, and in 2 Timothy, he's towards the end of his ministry. In fact, if you go back just a couple of verses, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, Paul says this, For I am ready, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but all those who have loved his appearance. Paul is towards the end of his ministry. He's fought the good five. His epistles are mostly written. His message has been authenticated. He's towards the end of his life. And therefore, the purpose of the miracles to authenticate his message has been met. They're no longer necessary. That's why you see in Acts 19 all these great things happening. But as the New Testament progresses, you see that they start fading away. And so, the question therefore becomes, is God or does God still heal today? Right? Paul left Trophimus sick. Paul told um, Timothy, drink some wine for your stomach issues. So, does God still heal today? Now, before we get to the answer to that question, I want to point out what I'm teaching. And what I am teaching is that the gift of healing or the supernatural ability to heal was a legit gift given to the apostles and his disciples at particular times to authenticate their ministry. That gift ceased with the completion of that ministry. And the Bible does not teach that healing is available on demand to anyone by faith. Or that lack of healing means a lack of faith. Okay, that's what I'm teaching against. All right. So the answer to the question is, does God still heal today? The answer to that is, yes, he does. How does God heal today? He heals providentially, both miraculously and non-miraculously. Okay, in accordance to his purpose. What does that mean? Number one. Many of the diseases that we see in the Bible are cured today, right? Many of the things that ail people in the biblical times are things that today no longer ail people as they used to for various reasons. Number one, medical science is better, right? We have medical science today that is, that is much better. We have a better understanding of hygiene. Indoor plumbing has healed and cured more people than all the faith healers of the world. Thank you, plumbers. You've saved us, okay? Hygiene, better understanding of bacteria, allows us to mitigate the pains of disease in our day and age. And in fact, all these things that we see today have happened under the providence of God. God gives man the mind to think. God guides man the resources to bring things about. All the things that we see today, nurses, doctors, hospitals, are brought about by God's providential care. It's not a coincidence that hospitals, doctors, medicines, 
came about in countries that were influenced by the Christian faith. You notice that? Where did this all come from? Modern-day medical science, Western European countries, influenced by the Christian faith. It's not a coincidence. We have all these things by God's providence, all right? Also, God can heal, and we see this in James chapter 5, in response to prayer. In fact, we are commanded to pray Amen. for healing in the book of James, in James chapter 5, verse 13. James says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. So the verse commands us as a church to pray for those who are sick among us. Notice the difference. When the apostles were here, you go to the apostles, the apostles could heal you. Now, he says, the apostle James tells us, if anyone's sick among you, go to the elders of the church. No healing campaigns, no big stadiums of churches, no cameras, no spectacles, just regular, everyday, ordinary folks who love the Lord, who lead the church, go to them and ask for prayer. James says, let, let him call the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there's no, nothing wrong with anointing people with oil, okay? It's perfectly fine. But there's nothing special about the oil, right? There's not magic. All right? Putting oil, it's not magic. All right? There's two meanings possibly for this verse. Okay? And uh, one, the one that I'm going to tell you today, makes perfect sense for me. Oil was not only used for religious purposes in the old days. It was also used for medicinal purposes. So people use oil. They, they, medical science was not what it is today in the olden days, right? So they believed that oil was used for medicinal purposes, all right? So what the verse could be saying is not only to pray for the person, but to also provide for the person whatever care you could provide for them to alleviate their discomfort. So it's not just if somebody is sick and is ill, you come to them, you just pray for them, pray for them, but also anoint them with oil, meaning pray for them, but also if you can, as a church, take care of the physical needs of that person to alleviate the discomfort, you do that too. There's nothing wrong with anointing with oil. That's perfectly fine. But you see the two things. You see, yes, we pray for healing. Yes, how can we help you? Do you need a chair, perhaps, that is more comfortable? Do you need crutches? Do you need to go to the hospital, right? There's a twofold thing here. We pray for you, but we don't just pray for you and anoint you with oil. How can we alleviate the problems that you have? You cannot go to the groceries, we'll bring you groceries. You cannot do this, we'll bring you that. Go to the elders of the church. That's where the church body exists, right? So God heals people through his church, both miraculously and non-miraculously. 
and he does heal and responds to prayer. What the Bible does not teach is that there are a special select group of men that we're supposed to go to every time we're sick and that these special group of men are the ones that have the power to heal you. That's not what the Bible teaches. Okay? That's what we see today. That's not what the Bible teaches. Reality has been really rough on the charismatic movement. Okay? A couple of years ago, back in 1960s, there was a medical doctor called William Nolan. He wrote a book called Searching for a Miracle. And he looked at the claims of Pentecostal faith healers, and he spent a lot of time researching Catherine Kuhlman. You don't know Catherine Kuhlman. She was one of the biggest well-known healers of her time. He was a medical doctor. He did some research. He tracked out many of her so-called people that were healed in her revivals, asked them if they can volunteer, and the research, 23 of them did. He followed through with them. He actually went back, he conducted physical tests on them, he followed through to them, and he realized that not one of them were actually healed. One lady, he wrote this in this book, supposedly was healed of spinal cancer in the meeting, and she threw, you know, she got up from her chair, he ran out. A day later, her spine collapsed, and four months later, she passed away as a result of the disease. But she was declared healed at the revival. See, the problem is that there was no follow-up to corroborate all of these healings. He went on to investigate beyond her every single popular minister until they start shutting their doors to him little by little. He used medical science, and he cannot prove not one person was actually healed of an actual organic disease. Yes, they had pains in their shoulder and the pain went away during the service meeting. Yes, some people were limping and during the service meeting they can walk fine, but not one person was actually cured of an organic disease. But the claims are there and the hopes were there. Catherine Kuhlman herself underwent heart surgery for her heart because claims can be made, but reality is still there. And the reality is we don't live in a magical world, and there's no people with magic powers. That's the reality. We are commanded to pray for the sick. God will heal people as he sees fit. That may entail God does indeed break the loss of nature and heal a person. A person's cancer may go away. But there also may entail that if you're sick with cancer, and you have to undergo some treatment. And after undergoing that treatment, your cancer goes into remission. That's God's way of healing you also. It's a non-miraculous, providential way of God healing you. You could have been born in 1569 and would have been dead already. My wife would have been dead if she was born a little over 50 years ago at the first pregnancy. But she wasn't because God knew at what time my wife was going to come into this world. God assigns and appoints the times of our habitations and the borders and the places in which you live, the Apostle Paul says, and he does that for a purpose or a reason. God may speed up the healing processes of your body so that you can recover quicker than usually you would. God may give your doctor when the church is praying. God may give your doctor special wisdom on what treatment that he could give specifically to treat you better. 
which otherwise he may not. But the church is praying, and God is working in the minds and thoughts of a doctor. That may entail you have to take treatment. That may entail you may have to have your leg amputated. Whatever it is, God still providentially will work all things together for good for his people. That is God's providential care and work. It's not all miracles and signs and wonders. It's also God's providential care for you. So does God heal? Yes, he does. If you're sick, come to your church. You have a local fellowship body of believers. There's no lights. There's no magic. There's no television cameras. There's just elders of your local body in the church. They will pray for you, anoint you with oil, provide for you whatever you, they can, and by faith in God, you may be healed. Okay? That's our command given to us by James. All right? Ultimately, the cure for our disease is the gospel. Our physical ailments and diseases are a direct result of the fall of Adam. The reason you and I get sick, the reason why our bodies are decaying, is because we incurred death when Adam fell. We died. You know when the Bible says, the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. In the original Hebrew, that means in dying, you shall die. So God tells Adam, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die by dying. It's like two deaths, because that's what happens to us. We die spiritually. Our relationship and fellowship with God was broken. We come into this world dead already. We are dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, right? We also begin to die physically. God tells Adam, no, God says to himself, now man is like us, knowing good and evil. Let us take him out of the garden, lest he takes from the fruit of the tree of life and lives. Man could have lived forever in sin, but God cut him out of access to the fruit. Because do you imagine us living forever in sin? Imagine Hitler still being alive today and Pharaoh. Imagine if people got hold of the tree of life, what they could do. God, in his mercy, cuts man off. And the moment he did that, we began to decay. We began to die. Our bodies decayed. We don't have the nutrition that kept us alive. We used to live to 900 years. Now, if you break 70, you're lucky. Right? Our bodies begin to decay. It's the result of sin. We died spiritually. We died to God. We broke the law. The wages of sin is death. And we die physically. But the gospel takes care of our problem. The gospel takes care of our legal problem caused by sin. We sin, we should die. Christ takes our sins and dies in our place. He takes away the legal obstacle that we had. He gives us spiritual life. We're born spiritually dead, blind, with no free will. God comes in and with his grace and through the means of grace and the preaching of the gospel, he opens our eyes. He draws us to him. He opens our minds that we may understand. He gives us faith. We believe we're regenerated by his spirit and we're given life, spiritual life. And one day, 
this body of mine will die. One day I'm going to get old, and I'm going to pass away. And this body, which is perishable and mortal, is going to be sown. And then one day, in a moment, and in the twinkling of an eye, the dead will rise. And that which is perishable will become imperishable. That which is mortal will become immortal. And one day, all of us who died in Christ will be raised from the dead and we will be given a glorified body. The solution to all the deaths is found in the gospel. God is going to swallow death, the Bible says. Right? Death is going to be swallowed up one day. And we will be redeemed, not only our souls, but our bodies will also be redeemed. And when that happens, there's not going to be any disease. There's not going to be any cancer. There's not going to be any ailments. There's not going to be any of that. The solution to our disease is the gospel. Everything else is a temporary reprieve. Lazarus got the best healing miracle ever. He died, Christ raised him from the dead. And then he died again because he's not here with us anymore. So at best, Lazarus was a temporary reprieve. This is, this is a break. Every time God heals you or you get healed, you're getting a little extension. That's all you're getting. Eventually, you will die. And the real solution and healing to your disease is found in the gospel. Because one day, you know what Paul says? If the dead just stay dead, then our faith is nothing. If all we do is die, then our faith is meaningless. But we're not only going to die, but one day we're going to rise up with Christ. And we're going to receive a glorified body. And that glorified body is not going to have any disease in it. It's not going to have any ailments. If you lose your fingers, you're going to get fingers, glorified fingers. If you lost your arm, you're going to get an arm, I guess. I don't know how this is going to look like. I'm assuming we're going to have arms. I don't know. But we're going to have a glorified body, right? One day in Christ, the gospel is the solution to our disease, physical spiritual and emotional is found all in Christ and all in the gospel. It's the final and ultimate cure to our disease, which is sin. That is the root of all our problems. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He took care of our sins and he will take care of all of sin's repercussions, suffering, death, disease, and violence. All that shall be no more. One day we will be raised from the dead in Christ Jesus. So the ultimate cure for our disease is the gospel. The gospel is sufficient. You don't need trickery around the gospel. You don't need signs and wonders. The gospel is enough. It's sufficient. It will do what it's supposed to do. We don't need anything else. It's enough. There's no such thing as a full gospel. The gospel is the full gospel. That's it. Alone, in and of itself. All right? So the gospel is the ultimate and final solution to our disease and is where God truly, ultimately heals every person that comes to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, Lord. We thank You for Your Scriptures. We thank You, Lord, for Your gospel. We thank You for Christ that came and died in our place 
and will give us life everlasting one day, Lord. We pray that you may help us understand this word today, that you may ingrain it into our hearts and minds, Lord, and that we may apply it in moments of difficulties and moments where we may even have physical ailments, Lord, that we always remember that you are holding us in your hand and you're providentially caring for every single one of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.